So I would be remiss if we didn't ask the Lord to be with Frank as he breaks the bread of life and also to pray for the um, lamb's offering to be used according to your will. The speaker has two scriptures here uh, that he references. The first is uh, Genesis 11.4, if you'll stand please. And then we'll be followed by Revelation 17, 1 and 2. So Genesis 11, verse 4. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And then Revelation 17, verses 1 and 2. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vows, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. It's always difficult getting up here for me. People say, oh, you're up here all the time. But when I'm up here for this reason, it's tough. Many people know me. My wife's still trying to figure me out. She says, how can you be so hard and yet so soft? Way ends of the spectrum. She's seen me when I'm as hard as a rock, I'll take on 10 guys. That was the old Frank. She refers to him as bad Frank. Some people have seen him and it's not pleasant. I don't like him. So I, I can no, have no problem being as tough as nails, but I also, when it comes to the Lord, wow. And being up here is one of them tough times. <clears throat> But I'll try not to bore you with my sentiment. Maybe I'm the weeping prophet. I don't know. I'm not trying to elevate myself at all. It's a great blessing today to be up here and then have three of my grandchildren here. Thank you, Liz. And Wayne. This is the Liz you've been heard I'm hearing about and the Wayne and the Logan. You already got to meet Sarah and since she was in Cradero and Mark and, and Olive. But that's the newest one for me as a grandfather. And uh, they've been, they're all a great blessing. Thank you. <clears throat> Before I can do this, I have to call upon the Lord. <clears throat> so please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, when we Realize your awesomeness. And this world has not even begun to see how awesome you are. But some of us who've been walking with him a while, we know oh too well the awesome power that he reserves for himself. And he reserves it to save us and to give us mercy and grace. That we all may come to a truth and understanding. And in this world that's working so hard, and it's not a new thing. We're going to talk about that today. 
but he has turned it up a few notches for he knows how short his time is. And I refer to Lucifer here, the fallen angel. So Lord, as I try to, I'm not going to try. You're going to bless me so I can do you and bring glory to your name and to your word. So forget about Frank up here today. Please listen to what's being said from the scripture. And the word is called and made flesh, which is Jesus Christ. So please forgive me for my shortcomings, but give me strength to overcome. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know if you have a notepad, but you might need it. We're going to go through some, so a lot of scripture. We're going to be in Genesis, and we're going to start at the very beginning in Genesis, not the first chapter, but the beginning book. And we're going to go to Genesis 9 for a reading there. I'm going to go through a lot of scripture. I'm going to try to do it slow enough that you can follow along, at least to the information. But note that the information is not coming from me. Um, there's been several people before me that have done a lot more Bible study than I have. And I'm going to go with their understanding. Genesis 9, 1. I'll probably read a lot of these so we can get through it, but just pay attention and follow along. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So he gave them a command right there in the beginning to Noah. Now, anybody knows about Noah knows that he um, was the one who built that ark and everybody thought he was crazy to build an ark when they never saw rain or understood anything about a great flood. He's telling, and he's talking to Noah here, and he's giving him a promise, actually. And, a, and he's saying he'll help him do it, as we're going to look out. Now, how many years was this after the flood? After. This was only 100 years after the flood that this takes place. Remember, he told Adam and Eve this in the garden, to be fruitful and multiply. He's now telling Noah, when there's only his family, to repopulate the earth, to scatter be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. Let's go to a couple chapters down the road here. It's Genesis 11. Genesis 11, 1 and 2. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech at the time. There wasn't all the languages that we have today. So everybody was able to talk and understand each other, which is very important. Then he goes on to say, And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Now, as much as I love the King James, and I believe it is, a, and I have the new King James, when it says they journeyed from the east, that's kind of incorrect. They actually went to the east. And you can tell that by, if you look at Mount Ararat, where they landed, and they went down to the valley, uh, and Shinar, Shinar um, the, the plain, that is southeast of there. It's not to the east. I mean, it's not from the east, as the Bible says. Some of the other newer versions have that corrected. A small little inconsistency, but if you look at the geographical map, you'll see that. So they were told, that, and they decided to travel there for one reason, Jerry. And you know this well. You had your property where your farm is. What was there when you first went there? Rocks. He had to make his own soil. Now, it's not a great place to garden, anybody who gardens. 
So they had a problem up in the mountains in Turkey and Mount Ararat. They had a problem with not enough soil to grow stuff there. So they moved down to some river bottom land. Correct? Wouldn't you like, who doesn't like to garden in river bottom land? Some of the best soils there. So they went down to the plain of Shinar. This is where it becomes very interesting. Because they were able to speak together. They were able to talk one language. There was no problems. Now, what happened in the land of Shinar? That's approximately in the Iraq area. What happened was, along came a, a person by the name of Nimrod. Okay, anybody heard of Nimrod before? Nimrod was known for what? To be a mighty hunter. And he also was a builder of the city, correct? Or the tower. Because too many times we think of the tower, I've got to set this straight. Too many times we think of a tower just being like the Eiffel Tower sitting up somewhere. This was much more than that. And some of the pictures that you see of the tower show that. It's a huge, it was actually a city tower. Okay? Um, and that's important. They, this wasn't a small thing. This took up a lot of area. It took up like three or four areas within. In other words, you say, uh, let's see, the five boroughs of New York. They take up one city, right? Can you imagine a city taking up that much space? Because this was going to be a high tower, was it not? Genesis 10, we're still in the same place, 8 to 11, talks about where Nimrod came from. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom, Babel, and the other area, cities, towns that he also founded. Now, what you need to know about Nimrod is from the line of Ham. Nimrod was, I don't know, his name was, means something. Let's start with that. His name means something. Names in the Old Testament mean something. Probably 70 times in Genesis alone, you're going to see the meaning of names because God put them, and he would change the names from time to time. So anybody want to take a guess what Nimrod's meaning of his name was? Rebellion. And as you're going to see, it fits. Now, he was, as I just said, a descendant of Ham, who was one of the sons of Noah. Anybody want to take a guess what kind of son he was? He was the most wicked one. So if there's a wicked one, there must be a faithful and righteous one, right? But Nimrod came from, and his name meant rebellion, and being how they all had one language and one speech, they all could converse together. You ever try talking to a Chinese person or someone of another language? Maybe they're trying to talk to us. Sometimes it's hard to get common ground. Here we see them all with the same speech. So therefore, they were able to accomplish great things, right? <clears throat> Nimrod was intent on establishing an apostate religion. How do we know this? We notice because of what we're going to learn about Tower of Babel. And what we already do know, we hear a lot about Babel, Babylon, Babylon the Great. All these things are tied together. Let me continue. So he was intent on establishing a great city that he had built. Nimrod, there's an interesting story I'm going to tell you about Nimrod. Many of you know it, right? Nimrod... Um, as this is going on, 
He didn't live a long, long time, but while he was alive, he married a woman, and her name was Semiramis. Nimrod died before Semiramis did. After he died, there's a parallel story here because there's a counterfeit to everything God has. Guess what happened? They sent Nimrod off, like they did, into the sunset, so to speak. They classified him as the sun god. Semiramis was still alive, but she had a problem. She got pregnant. She came up with a really good story. She was an immaculate conception. Because Nimrod came back from the heavens as a god and impregnated her. And you know she had a son? Tammuz. Tammuz, anybody want to take a guess when his birthday is? December 25th. So you can see a parallel story of what God had done. So you're getting an idea that he wasn't just in this to build a city for himself. He was in this to build a city, an apostate city, an apostate religions. Most of them, a lot of them, come from that very place. <clears throat> they have the same, well, sun worship is blatant around the world, but when Semiramis died, she became the moon goddess. So we see some similarities of people worshiping things that are made and not the one who made them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in that, but... Because of that, we see things to totally demoralize the human race, right in the beginning. There's a reason for that. Genesis 11, 3 and 4 reads, Then they came to one another, Come, let us make bricks, and bake them thoroughly, that um, they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. Anybody want to take a guess why that is? It's historical. It's, it's, it's in the... Israel has a lot of stones. Let's just start with that. But in the area of Mesopotamia was in the valley between the two rivers. And what they had was a lot of sand. What else is known in the Iraq area? Asphalt, because they have a lot of oil. So they used those things to build the tower. So it required a lot of pulling things together. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves let us be scattered, excuse me, lest we be scattered and abroad over the face of the whole earth. Didn't God tell Noah that's what he wanted him to do? Yeah, we hear we see Nimrod going against that. We're going to stay together. We're going to build a big city. But did you notice something else in those scripture readings that came up quite a bit in verse 4? Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens and make a name for ourselves. So we see Nimrod here and some of the other mighty men, which we'll get to, have said to themselves, we're going to do something to make our name live forever, to make our reputation. When I think of uh, someone I may know, Jerry, his reputation is being a farmer or a gardener or understanding about trees and plants. And what's the name that is? Yeah. Now Israel had a lot of stones, as I said, and they built the city for the sake of themselves. Not very humble, right? Ourselves is a common word here. What didn't they want to happen? They didn't want to be scattered around the earth. So you could say at this point in time, this was actually the first New World Order that was actually happening. Patriots and Prophets puts it this way. It's a really excellent book if you want to read about people, uh, Patriots and Prophets people. 
I'm going to read from page 119, just something to give us something to chew on. This is the only reading I'm going to read from. God had directed men to uh, disperse throughout the earth to uh, replenish and subdue it. But the Babel builders determined to keep their community united in one body and to found uh, found a monarchy that should eventually embrace the whole earth. Thus their city would become the metropolis of the universal empire. Its glory would command the admiration and homage of the world and render the founders illustrious. The magnificent tower reaching to the heavens was intent to stand as a monument of the power and wisdom of its builders, perpetuating their fame to the latest generations. The dwellers on the plain of Shinar disbelieved God's covenant that he would not again bring a flood upon the earth. Many of them denied the existence of God and attributed the flood to the operation of natural causes. Others believed in a supreme being and that it was he who had destroyed the antediluvian world, and their hearts, like that of Cain, rose up in rebellion against him. The one object before them in the erection of the tower was to secure their own safety in case of another deluge. By carrying the structure to a much higher, greater height than was reached by the waters of the flood, they thought to place themselves beyond all possible danger and as they would be able to ascend to the region of the clouds, they hoped to assert the cause of the flood, ascertain, excuse me, understand the cause of the flood. The whole undertaking was designed to exalt still further the pride of its projectors and to turn the mind of future generations away from God and lead them into idolatry. This was not a small thing. There was actually apartments in this thing where the builders lived and very um, flamboyant ones, maybe like Trump and his, some of his gold-figured surroundings. This was no small undertaking. And they did it for one reason and one reason only, right? Now, a thousand years later, roughly, there was someone that we all know or we heard about, Nebuchadnezzar. He was also in the same region, in the area known, and it was called Neo-Babylon. He built his city with the same type of spirit. In Daniel 4.30, it talks about that. I'm going to flip there. It talks about the attitude of of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, interesting enough, gave his life to the Lord after quite a bit of uh, humbling, you could say. So... Uh, excuse me, Daniel. I'm not even there yet. I better pay attention. Daniel 4. See if there's not a similar attitude. 430. The king spoke, saying, It is not this is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling in my by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. We see a continuation of the same kind of attitude that came from the line of Ham after the flood. Now, let's get... So he he had the selfishness thinking and the same, look at what I have done. But back to the tower. In the light of the flood, it may be explained that the reason of the flood also to build the taller tower was just as I said. 
if another flood came by, even though God promised them what? That wasn't going to be happening again, right? So were they having faith in anything other than themselves? They certainly didn't believe God. They must have been basically calling God a liar. They had no trust in God's promise. So they totally built these things with their own selfishness to make themselves a name. And a better word for that interpretation may be reputation. To be known or renowned, the same as the daughters of men or the sons of men in Genesis 6-2. There was no, anybody's, have you ever heard of the sons of God? Daughters of men? Well, there's also daughters, uh, sons of men as well. So it's standard reason that there might even be daughters of God too. Six, Genesis 6, 2. It's all going somewhere. Just try to contain everything that's being said here because it's going to wrap up. Not this soon, but it's going to wrap up to a point. 6, 2. And the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful. And they took wives for them of all they, of whom they chose. So we clearly see something going on here. We see that the daughters of, sons of God are going to the daughters of men and taking them. Okay, it goes on to say that um, there was giants in the land at the time. There was giants before. Some people interpreted that, you know, because of this interaction between the sons of God, calling them angels or something, they intermarried with human women and giants came out of it. But the Bible's clear that giants existed before. And after. So that kind of shoots a hole in that theory. But it goes on to say, men of renown, exact same expression as in Genesis 11. What did they want to do? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be a good rep a reputation of what they wanted to live on for generations. And the next verse is, Verse 6, same place I'm going to go to. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. We saw that happen 100, 150 years earlier before the flood. Because they had become wicked very quickly. Now the sons of men were the builders of the tower. It talks about that in chapter 6. Those were the men who from Nimrod wanted, uh, got together to build the, the tower. So they were not the sons of God, they were the sons of men. They were the builders. Sons of God and daughters of men that got together, and it was the sons of men that came out of that. And you think that they're, like I said, there was obviously daughters of God. So I wonder what the attraction was. I haven't looked that up yet. But sons of daughters, of men, they came actually from the line of Cain, which actually was before the flood, which came through the line of Ham. Um, and it talks about the sons of men in Ecclesiastes. It's just to, don't take my word for it. That's the one thing I don't want you to do. So if you don't believe me that the sons of men and the daughters of men were upright, don't take my word for it. I'm going to give you some proof right here. Ecclesiastes. I can find it. It's okay to take time to find scripture, you know. 
Um, especially when you get up here and you get nervous, like me. <laughs> so, because I'm going to set an example, I'm going to go, instead of boring you with time, I'm going to go to, where's that thing in the front? Ah, yes. I always have a problem with Ecclesiastes, by the way, just so you know. It's one of those, huh? There you go. Thank you. Ecclesiastes 8, 11. It says here, because the sentence came, uh, the sentence against an evil work is not excluded speedily. That's the right verse? Yeah. Therefore, the heart of the sons of man, men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet surely no. That's not the verse you want, but I thought it would... I had it highlighted for another reason. So anyway, the point is, their heart of the, of the sons of men are fully set to do evil. Gives us a definition to make a clarification who is who here. And we're already seeing some of the reputation that they had is not so good, is it? No. I'm going to go back to Genesis. Yeah, no, I'm not going there, but that's another verse. I'm just giving you one verse. We could spend all day finding verses uh, to back up this. I'm just trying to let you know that this isn't a Frank just saying the sons of men mean evil. Their hearts were set to do evil. And in 11.5, it reads this way. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Um, he saw that they were wicked, as we just read. And he saw also that they were united in this rebellion, as I said, how do you be united more easier than if you're speaking the same language? You have the same um, mindset on doing it. And it wasn't what God said, because what did God tell us in the beginning? Be fruitful, multiply, and scatter. They just wanted to stay there because it's easier to corrupt the whole world if they're in one place. It's harder if you start spreading out. Like if you live in the country, you're kind of not in the same city realm you have freedom to garden, freedom for fresh air, good water, all those things. Where in the city, you're kind of given what they want to give you through city water or whatever supplies. So it's much easier to control. And in controlling, if you have the hearts of men, which is continually evil, then most likely you're trying to corrupt. Hmm. Why don't I hear something like that? Seems like in the last couple of years in the news, we hear a lot about corruption and evil being shown to us. But only the beginning, as God said, is what, when he came down to see, only the beginning is what they were doing. But what he did see, and he knows all things, right? That they would continually get worse. And he just destroyed the whole world prior to that, a couple hundred years earlier through the flood. Why do you think they wanted to do that? Why do you think Satan wanted them to do that? Why did he want to corrupt them through the minds of men, sons of man, daughters of men? You think he had a purpose? think he just doesn't like human beings? Which I think he doesn't. But I think there was more to that. Since we are all sinners, even those who are sons of God, there's a difference between the sons of God and the sons of men. We all know we're sinners, but what is the difference? Sons of God repent. Daughters of God repent. 
The other ones say, no, I don't need God. In fact, he's a liar. We're going to build a tower, even though he said he isn't going to destroy us. But what was the reason that we all repent for? Sin. But is that repentance any good unless we have an offering? So what was due, what was going to come out of that focus of this particular time, right after the flood, before we got to populate the whole planet? He had to protect one thing. He had to protect the line of the seed, the sacrifice, Jesus. So wouldn't it be wise, because you think Lucifer doesn't know about the promise made in 315? Think he doesn't know that someone's going to come crush his head, the seed? So what would be the natural thing to do? Try to destroy the line. Corrupt it, destroy it any way you can. That was his intention by using the sons of men and building this thing and going against everything God said. In other words, go out and be fruitful and multiply and scatter around the earth. No, let's stay together. Let's all get corrupted together. Let's see where we can ruin the line and the seed of Christ, which came through who? Came through Shem. The Shemites. Absolutely. Okay. Um, in Galatians, we also see the same thing. One language, one intent, one purpose. God has to come down, and he comes down at this time to see what's going on. Uh, and he sees that the knowledge of God might be done away with through this corruption. Genesis 11:7. What does it say there? Come, this is God talking. Let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Any builders in the house? Anybody who tries to do something with a group of people? I did drywall for quite a while, a lot of building, and I'll tell you what, if the people don't know what you're saying, you can make a project last for a long time. But God said, hey, you know what? We got to get down there and do something about this. Think God didn't know their intention of what they were trying to do? God knows all things. So here's the question. Why was this God's plan then? To scatter them. But when he did confuse their language, let's back up. There's two things that happened once these confused their language. They weren't able to build it. I'm up top, I'm building a huge city, I gotta call somebody in New York State to bring up some, bring some supplies in, and I talk to you in Spanish, or Chinese, or Italian, right Roy? And then he tries to talk to someone else in another language. I think our project's gonna slow down quite a bit. Now what else happened at the time was, when that happened, they stopped to build it, obviously, but with all these different languages that came out of the Tower of Babel, the people with the separate languages started to drift off. So God said, hey, I'm going to make you do what you didn't do when I asked you to do it. I'm going to cause it to be done this way. Scatter. Huh? Scatter. Yep, scatter and multiply in different areas. And they coagulated in places where they had the same speech. And actually, all the nations of the world and most of the languages came out of Babylon. Stands to reason the whole world was destroyed. Babylon was one family that started this. They all spoke the same language. Here we see that God got them to do and scatter what he originally asked them to do before he said to change their language. He wanted them to go all with the same language around the planet and scatter and populate. 
would have been easier to do it when God asked us, right? But God doesn't let us. He wants to save us, man. And he'll go to any extent to do that. So why was this God's plan? Because it's much harder to corrupt people when they're spread around the world. It's much harder. You don't have the communication. Now we have a lot of communication. It's getting easier to spread the gospel, but also to spread a lot of other things. But it was harder to unify the rebellion, but not impossible, as we can see in our time, before Jesus comes back. We see things corrupting big time. And it's, we're spread all over the planet now. Every nation of the world came out of Babel. Every religion of the world also came out of there, believe it or not. Because there's common practices that we see if we study any religions, and I'm not saying I studied them all, but there's common practices in all religions, especially the most radically different ones, like Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Roman Catholics. I mean, that pretty much covers the basis of a lot of radical. There's a lot of other religions, don't get me wrong, but they all have common ground. You know that they all pray with beads? Yeah, they all pray with, pray with beads. Most, a lot of them worship the sun, including the Catholic Church. The Sunday, the day to worship. Worship of the sun on the Sunday. Um, they also all have a woman priestess or high priest involved somewhere. Oh, Catholics don't? Yeah, they do. Mary is your co-redemptious. Isn't that a woman involved in deity, no less? It all comes from Semiramis and from that whole um, line. All worship the sun god, which is who? Nimrod, right? But he has a lot of other names. He goes Isis. There's so many other names he goes by. Uh, there's so many other names that Lucifer goes by. In fact, it's not just the evil side that does that, because I got a picture out there in a frame that talks, gives you 52 names of Jesus. These names all tell us a little characteristic about the being we're talking about. Remember, names mean something. In Genesis 11, 9, the Tower Babel episode ends. It says there, therefore its name is called Babel because they, uh, there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad to over the whole face of the whole earth. Now, in, in the next verse, the genealogy of Shem is very important because what we see here coming out of here is the two seeds. This is where it gets interesting. The two seeds, one is obviously a wicked seed and one is obviously a faithful seed. So the genealogy of Shem is very important because that's the descendants of, well, the sons of God, the faithful. Then we have the sons of Ham, which is the sons of men um, from Ham uh, and uh, uh, the builder of Babel. But Shem's line would be then the Shemites, God's righteous line. But Satan had his own line too. He likes to counterfeit. Satan had his, had his. And so God would keep the line separate because out of that line would come what? Not just Jesus, but before that would come what? Israel. The nation of Israel would come out of that line as well. 
And all through the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, we see the extremes of the battling going on between these two ideologies, Israel and Babylon. They go right to the end of Scripture. Israel and Babel, Babylon, Babel or Babylon. <clears throat> Satan's system and God's system, all the way to Revelation, as we read earlier. Genesis 11 has the lines drawn, one from Abraham and one, I'm, excuse me, one for Ham and one from the Israelites. The line to which the Abraham comes from and the seed of which the Messiah comes from is the same line. Acts 7, Acts 7 in New Testament, 7, chapter 7. We see something about Abraham. Seven, two through four. And he said, Men and brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. So, as I said earlier, Mesopotamia is where? It's in the Babylonian area. It's in the area of Iraq. In fact, it said that it was actually in Mesopotamia, which is, means the land between two rivers. Which two rivers are we talking about? The Euphrates and the Tigris. Most of the time in Scripture, when we're talking about a river and it's not named, it's the Euphrates. Just, just to keep that in the back of your mind. Now, he had to do what? Call him out of there? He says here, get out of your country and from your relatives. Everybody in a hurry to leave their relatives? I'm not saying that's what it's implying, but here it is. It's implying he has to leave his relatives, because what did that mean? I think most of his relatives, as the Bible says, were becoming corrupted from living in Babylon. But Abraham was still able to be called out of and able to be a righteous man, as God calls him many times. And the call came from God, didn't it? So here we see God preserving what? The line where switch the holy seed is going to come from. And maybe people use that seed as all his sons and from his son and from all his sons or his grandchildren, let me say. But that's not what it means, because if you look there, it actually says, and I think we're going to get to that verse. Uh, let me see where it is. I get ahead of myself sometimes. He called them out to go to Canaan. Where, and what was in Canaan? That was the point. There was two cities that came out of Canaan, right? Very notable cities, right, Eric? And they were bad. What? Where was it? Hmm? Put them on a spot. Bethlehem in Jerusalem. Are they important for any reason? Who comes out of them? Who has something to do with that? We have the nation of Israel and also Christ. The Messiah. We also see in verse 4 of Acts, it talks about um, the Chaldeans. That's another name for that same area. Babylon, Mesopotamia. God calls Abraham out to form a nation in Canaan. And Christians miss the point many times because they focus so much on the nation of Israel, they forget the reason for Israel. And we're all, we're all kind of guilty of that. You hear it all the time. There's a lot of people uh, looking to Israel right now to build the new Temple Mount, to build a new temple on the Temple Mount. 
And they're even going so far to do what? Breed the red heifer, aren't they, Roy? Because they have to sacrifice that. There's a special meaning to that. To, to sacrifice that so they can open up and uh, ordain in the temple. So we're all focused over there in the Middle East. Not all of us, but I mean a lot of prophecies are focused on that. Instead of focusing on the reason for the nation. And what was the reason for that nation? Huh? Joshua 24. That's... We know now that the Messiah is coming through this line. We know about the corruption. But what does Abraham, and why was Abraham called out of there? Remember I told you he had to leave his um, relatives and leave the area. Where Does anybody like to move? Wait a minute, you guys are moving. You like to move, right? I moved about 30 times in my life, so I've never grown roots anywhere. Um, the funny thing is my wife has not moved that many times. <laughs> and... It's ironic because since we've been together, one of the shortest places she ever lived is the longest place I ever lived in one place. <laughs> that was, what, 10 years, right, honey? 10 years. Let's see. I'm forgetting where I'm going here. Just bear with me. Yep, I'm going to Joshua. I'm almost there. Yep, 24, yep. Joshua 24. <clears throat> Verses 2 and 3. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, Shechem, excuse me, and called for the elders of Israel for their heads. Oh, I wanted two, two and three. I read every one. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Tehran, and the, fa uh, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, and these rivers are the Euphrates, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. So what do we see there? He took them out of there for what reason? Because they were serving other gods. So they were becoming corrupted. His own father was serving other gods. Abraham's father, Nahor. Terra, excuse me. Thank you. Paying attention. That was a trick. Just kidding. See if you're paying attention. No. Terra, uh, excuse me. The father of Abraham. He had even become worshiping idols and gods. So God had us do something to get him out of there to preserve the line. And we hear lots of, of what's going on with that uh, in Abraham's life. So the lineage of the line of the Messiah was becoming corrupt and he had to. Save it. So did Satan know about this? That's his plan. Why? Yeah. Destroy the seed because he didn't want his head crushed. Stopping the seed of the Messiah so it can't crush the head of Satan. Mm -hmm. God didn't just want a people just to fear them more than other people. But he wanted a people, in other words, I'm talking about Israel here. He didn't just want people to be feared by him. That's not what he was looking for. He was looking for them to proclaim the coming of the Messiah, and more importantly, to preserve the line of Jesus to which he came from. 
and the world would be ready to see, receive him if you're announcing that Jesus is coming. He has the power to save everyone. You need to call upon his name to be saved. There's no other way. But he needed the people to do that. And so many times we focus on the people rather than what the people were about and where the seed was coming from. And we saw that all the way through Jesus' life when we talked about the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees and Pharisees. Um, they were denying him. In fact, they called for his crucifixion, didn't they? Okay. Move along here. Let's go back to Genesis where it talks about him calling them out. Genesis 12. We're actually it reads like this get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I, sh I will show you I will make you a great nation I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Oh, is that how you read that right? I think it says, and in him all the Israelites will be saved on the earth. The Israelites wanted to keep that little light under their own bushel basket, didn't they? They had a prize. They weren't going to share with anybody. Any parallels to that today? I mean, we are supposed to be spiritual Israel. Yeah, but we are the other side. We are supposed to be the Israelites, spiritually speaking. Are we hiding the salvation message under a bushel basket? We like to think no. But I think we could do better at it. Personally, I know I could. I won't call upon you. You're probably doing it right. I mean, I can learn from you. So we see the seed of Abraham. If you notice in Genesis 1-3, no, not that one. There's another verse. Let's see, I just read you verse 3. We see some blessings here that we're going to come to Abraham. But interestingly, we see God chose Abraham first, a singular person. Then through Abraham, a nation was to be born to prepare the way for Christ, the Messiah. And then we go back to a singular, which is Christ the Messiah, who then goes through in Acts, we see calling together the apostolic church, another nation. So we go from a singular to a nation, calling attention to the singular again, the actual point of everything, the desire of the ages, to the point where he starts another movement to do what? Huh? The gospel. For what reason? Is Christ coming again? It's sort of the same thing in a lot of ways, isn't it? They were supposed to call about the attention being brought to the seed coming as a savior for mankind, and they failed for the most part. And now Jesus comes, he can't work with them anymore. So he calls another group of people, another nation, spiritually speaking, to do similarly the same thing. But not to say that Christ is coming, has come, and is coming again. He has come, and he's now your Savior. You have a way to be saved. And he's coming back to take you home. We got a big job to do, and a short time to do it. Praise God, he's not going to leave us alone to do that. Both to prepare the world. 
And what are we supposed to do in that preparation? Are we going to do what happened to Abraham? Are we supposed to call people out of the world? Maybe you have to call me out of the world sometimes, huh, Roy? Amen. Thank you. I need help. Galatians 3.16. Back to the New Testament again. I love when I hear someone say they're a New Testament church. I'm like, how can you be a New Testament church? Without the Old Testament, there is no New Testament. So we want to notice the promise to Abraham. Let's look at this a little bit. The promise to Abraham. Remember I told you there's seeds and there's seed. Three. Chapter 3 of Galatians 16 and 17. Now to Abraham and his seed. A lot of people think that means, you know, humans, people, his offspring. But if you notice in my Bible, that's actually capitalized and it's singular. You think he's talking about a nation here or he's talking about an individual? Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. It does not say, and it clarifies it. I'm not making this up. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, small s, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, again, capitalized, uh, singular, who is Christ? There's no, there's no question there, is there? Spells it out, as the Bible so often does. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So when we're talking about Abraham, we have to be careful and look at it. Seeds, seed, what are we talking about here? Sometimes we're talking about seeds, small s, plural, and sometimes we're talking about the Messiah. To bless all families. Interesting, God chose Abraham first and then through Abraham, as I said, chose the nation. So that's where it gets confusing. He's also bringing light to seed, the Messiah, and also to nation. And some people say, well, you can't be, they get into arguing about circumcision, you can't be of the line of Abraham if you're not circumcised, or you can't be a Gentile. That's not what the Scripture teaches. Thank God, or I probably wouldn't be able to be saved, right? Have to be a Jewish or a nation of Israel. Here's an interesting point in 2 Corinthians 1-2. Um, it goes and talks about something I want to talk about. We're, we're better than halfway through, so bear with me. I know I'm racing through this kind of. Um, hopefully, it's not too fast for you. 2 Corinthians 1-20. Because a lot of people think that Abraham didn't understand the bigger message, or that Enoch didn't understand, or Elijah didn't understand the bigger message. They were only thinking about that small Jerusalem area or their small area in Canaan. But I'm going to show you something here. All the promises are yes and amen in Christ. That's what we see here. Revelation, I mean, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 1.20 reads like this. For all the promises of God in him are yes and and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. There's four basic promises 
that were given to Abraham. In Genesis 12.3, it talks about the blessing. Then it talks about the land. And as I said, it's just many of us think of the land in Canaan. Abraham knew it was much more than that, than just Canaan. He understood that, as did the other people, uh, patriarchs. Romans 4.13 talks about the blessing of being the heir of the world. He wasn't just thinking about Canaan, folks. He was thinking about the world. This is the blessings that God said he was going to put, give to Abraham. Uh, Hebrews 11 talks of saying that the heavenly city whose builder and maker was God, Abraham was looking for it. So tell me how he didn't realize what was really going on. He was looking at the kingdom of heaven. He knew that Canaan was just a down payment on that promise. Basically. Maybe it's a bad term, but you get my point. He knew that was a small portion. God had so much bigger. Do we limit God? We ask for blessings. We're like, okay, you know, just give me, give me a car that runs. I don't think we should be asking for a Rolls Royce, but I think we could do better if we believe God is who he says he is. I'm not saying we should ask for those kind of things, but you get my point. We limit God to our understanding of what we think God can do for us. I'm guilty of it. He's trying to teach me. I'm a hard head to learn, man. But it's coming slowly. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. Cain in the Old Testament was just a down payment on the whole world. He also gave him dominion and kingship, as I said, over his enemies. Those are promises made. And a seed, meaning Christ, that all nations would be blessed. So he just wasn't looking for a blessing on himself. He was looking for a blessing on everybody. He understood this, and so did all the other patriarchs, because they all called upon the name of the Lord. What does it mean? You can look in the Old Testament. It says, um, Genesis 4, 6, first time we see this phrase being used. It was Seth. He called upon the name of the Lord. Then we see Abraham calling upon the name of the Lord. We see Isaac calling upon the name of the Lord. Elijah calling upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Does it, does that, it seems like it should mean something. If these great men are calling upon the name of the Lord, what does that mean? Well, we look in Scripture, and what does it say that it meant? What did they do when they called upon the name of the Lord? They built an altar. They had a sacrifice. They knew what they were doing. They knew what the promises were that Abraham got later. They were looking forward to it, but they, they knew it. Think God didn't tell them? I believe he did. And all of them built an altar first and then called upon the name of the Lord. And those altars represented who? Jesus, the sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice. Not the little lambs and all the other stuff we brought to the altar. Two, on the day of Pentecost, we also see Peter quoting, call upon the name of the Lord. On the day of Pentecost. It's the same Jesus as the Old Testament. By then, Peter was totally inflicted with the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Peter was the rough-spoken one. The Apostle Paul, same thing. Romans 10 through 13 speaks about him calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Abraham saw my day in John 8, 56. Jesus was speaking. Let's go there. John, we're right close to it. John 
Jesus speaking here. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. My day is capitalized. What is the Lord's day when he's talking about in this realm and this context? Huh? Well, the Sabbath, yes, on a lesser degree, but the day that he's talking about is much bigger than that. The day of the coming of the Lord. When those promises and blessings he had given them earlier come true. You know, it's like telling a child you're going to give him a present on Christmas. Right? You think they're not waiting for that day to come when they get the reward in their eyes? As a father over here, you're saying you hear about it often, don't you? There's nothing wrong with uplifting yourself, with looking for the coming of Christ and the ultimate blessing coming. Isn't that what we get great hope over? The world needs hope. We got this great message that the world can be saved and no more crying, no more tears, no more disease. And we can have a piece of that now as an installment through what God tells us as a health message, what God tells us to comfort us. And somehow we just don't believe it, I think. I'm, not, I'm just being, you know, putting it out there. I think a lot of us do believe it and we share it. But here's where it really hits the road, that we share it every moment and every day. Are we at that point? We'd be ready for sealing if that was the case. And I hope that's sooner than later, but I know I'm not ready. That's disheartening to me. They all knew that Jesus was the center of the sacrifices at the altar. Abraham saw it and rejoiced in it. That Jesus was the center. Jesus at the center of the blessings of Abraham. All those blessings I mentioned. The blessings, period. The blessings of a land. The blessings of heir of the world. Blessings of kingship of the world. Blessings of dominion over the world. These are great, great blessings. But yet we don't sometimes, I think sometimes you lose sight of it. That's what I'm going to say. You know, when the darkest clouds are weighing you down and you're having the worst day of your life, just got told you got cancer or something on your face or cancer in your brain or cancer in your lungs or, you know, anything like that. I'm just using cancer, but it could be other things, right, Barb? Those are not good things. I remember when he told me I had cancer, my wife and I walked out and we're like, solemn. And she turned to me and said, we can do this. Thank you, honey. We need to uplift other people. It means something. It's tough to be the only one saying it. It's tough to be standing alone. Peer pressure, politically correct, cancel culture is out to do a number because they don't want us proclaiming a message that people may not perceive as what the world wants to tell you. And that's, if we're reading here, who is the world? It's called Babylon. Actually, it's called Babylon the Great. This was Babel, then it was Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar, but the Bible talks about it being what? Babylon the Great, because it's not just in Mesopotamia. It's encompassing the whole world. It's a system, yes. So the promise we get through Abraham, we all are able to count and grab onto that promise of the Savior and all the blessings that come with it. And Satan is still working to corrupt the church today. That's us, people. We're the church. God's people from preparing the world. 
He's still trying to keep us from that message. Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. But now we have a problem. We have, a, we have the confusion of the languages back in Babel. How do we, do you speak Chinese? Do you speak Spanish? Do you speak any other languages, James? Uh, not very good. <laughs> so, some of you are bilingual, some of you are multiple languages, but they're very rare. I speak very little of a couple languages, enough to get me in trouble probably. Um, but we see here that we have a problem to reach all those people as a church. God has an answer, doesn't he, Sarah? Where is that answer found? He reversed the curse, Acts 1.8. Well, Acts 1.8. You already know what it is, right? Yes. Reverse the curse. Jesus speaking here. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's a gift of tongues. God doesn't leave us alone to do this ourselves. Praise God. Thank God. Hold them up on high. And that's what the gift is. Tongues, speaking in other languages. Not mumbling things that are unknownable. I can get you over here in Babylon, can't I? You know when you have a little child, a baby, like he's trying to talk, sometimes you can make it out after they babble long enough. Like I'm watching Logan and he's, he's got certain words. I think he just said grandma. I think he said dada. And anybody with children see that. You see that change, right? When they go from like just bubbling spit trying to say and make, let you know what's going on. But then you see him start to actually formulate words. Amen to that. It's wonderful to watch. The coming of Jesus, amen, has come and he's coming again. Let's take a look quickly in Genesis, uh, excuse me, Revelation. We're almost there, folks. I'll let you go shortly. Thanks for bearing with me. 17.5, a global picture. Because now we're going to move right into the future here and wrap this up. 17.5. What does it say here? And on her forehead a name was written. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abomination of the earth. Same chapter. <clears throat> we look at a final movement called Babylon the Great. In 17.1 and 2, and then one of the seven angels had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. There's that word waters again. Is he sitting there swimming or bathing? That waters means something else here, doesn't it? Yes. With whom, because it goes on, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. It means a little more than water then, doesn't it? We see in the Bible a lot of times the water takes on the name. What was the Euphrates? Isn't that water in the Euphrates? Other scripture says Revelation 16, 12 talks about Revelation, I mean talks about those Euphrates again. 16, 12, same page in my Bible. Mm, just read it in a different way. Then the sixth angel poured out his vial on the great river Euphrates and its waters were dried up. 
so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Waters is meaning something different than just water that we're pouring out of a glass, right? It's meaning people. Now we see the harlot sitting on the beast over many waters. Yet we're supposed to spread the word, right? To people, nation, kindred, and tongue. I'm not going to go there right now. But um, Revelation 18 talks about what that beast who's sitting there does and has an influence over. Revelation 18, 2. And he cried in mighty voice with a loud voice, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a habitation of demons, prison of every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean, hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through their abundancy and luxuries. That sounds like a lot. Sounds like we have the economic, political, educational, religious, national, all the systems of the world seem to be connected to Babylon the Great. And many waters, sitting over many waters, as the harlot is sitting on. Because it says here in, in Revelation 17, verse 15, He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are people's multitudes, nations, and tongues. I didn't make it up. Yet those are the ones we have to reach, right? Every nation, kindred, people, and tongues. But it seems to be a mighty, heavily controlled arm over them. If, the, if that beast is controlled the economic, political, educational, religious, natural system that we have, hmm, we have to try to witness to them. And they become drunk with the wine, which is equal to false religious doctrines. Or false other doctrines, actually. You know, like certain things. I'll do this for Ben back there. He says, you're not going to say anything about COVID. I said, I wasn't planning on it. So I won't. Got his, I got his attention, though. False doctrines, false religious doctrines, false biblical doctrines. Is there a health message in the Bible? Huh. Is there a true health message and a false health message? Hmm. That's as far as I'm going to go with that. Is there a people that are supposed to call out these people, every nation, kidding and tongue, or waters that the beast is sitting on and holding control over? Revelation 14, 6, many of us know it, Right? Is there a people there? There you go. So God has his people. That line, that seed that came from Shem comes all the way down to the end. But the line of Ham comes all the way down to the end too. And sometimes I think they have more control over the planet through Babylon the Great. But God is in control of everything. And since he's told us these things are going to happen, we should be about... God's business? Or has Jesus said, didn't he say about my father's business? We should seek to do God's will. It says 6, six through 12, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, people, a tongue and people, saying with a lot of choice, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heavens and earth and the seas and the springs of waters. All the way to 12. 
And then another angel, which is the second angel, which is followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations, uh, I think it says some nations, all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then there's a third angel. The third angel followed them, saying, with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rose forever and ever, and they did not have rest day or night, who worshiped the beast in his image, and whoever receives that mark of his name. But here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. God has his people throughout all this. Amen. I pray that everyone here is part of that group of people. So one is promoting apostasy. One is promoting faith in God. Amen. That there is a people. But God has his people all the way through Scripture, through the seed of Abraham, through the seed of Christ. And that message is to come out of her. In Revelation 18, 4, 5. Come out of her, my people. If we go on and read what's going on in Revelation 16, 17 to 21, we see that Babylon has fallen. We just read it. Do you love people that are not sitting in these pews here today? People that you know, not even people, strangers. Is there people out there that you love? Do you want them in Babylon when it comes crashing down? Worse than that, it's, it's, we're told that some of them are going to come up and say, why didn't you tell me? You're going to say, well, I told you 20 times you didn't want to hear? I don't think so. I don't think that's going to come by your mind. Would Christ have said that to you? Let me back up. Christ did say, depart from me, I don't know you. But that's Christ, and that's his prerogative. That's not ours. Sometimes I think we put ourselves in that place. We can't wait to say, huh, I was right, you were wrong. I've been vindicated. No, no, no. Who's supposed to be vindicated here? Christ. How is he vindicated? Through each one of us. Our witness. And who gives us the power to witness, James? Christ. So are we really doing anything of ourselves other than being, looking forward to doing the will of Christ? Being obedient to him? And he gives us the power and everything to do it. And we still fail and he forgives us and says, I'll pick you up, dust you off, and send you out again. And we're like, no, nah, I'm not going out again. I'm scared. You know what? Uh, my friend over there in North Carolina, and I know, he doesn't, I'm not going to go back there. I don't want to. He doesn't really need to be saved. He needs to be saved. If they abuse you because you're trying to give them the message of Christ, they're just beating up Christ. They're not beating you up. Because that seed that's planted... Seed being used in another way. You know how many times we've had people, and you've all probably seen, I can only speak from my wife and my experience. Since my wife's known me better than 20 years now, and I probably haven't changed a whole lot in some respects, um, I met a lot of her friends that were not of the religious persuasion in that time. And some of them, I'm sure, thought I was a little bit weird. Because I go to their picnics or I go to their parties, and they're like, oh, no, you know, you got to do this jello shot. Everybody here comes in the door has got to do a jello shot. 
Not me. Oh, no, everybody's got to do it. Not me. All right? So they eventually accept it, but I'm probably thinking they're walking away going, what a weirdo. He's a party pooper. Or I won't eat that. I brought some of my own special sausages I want to put on the grill over here that are made from eggplant or whatever. I love them things, uh, in the summertime especially. And I'm like, oh, no, that's... The funny part is, when they come to a place where they need, like Wayne's, Wayne's wife, all of a sudden they remember the health message that they laughed about you having, and you're the first person they call. Hey, you know that crazy diet? Can you tell me more about it? They remember it because you made that impact on them because you were, what was it, someone, where's Matthew? Came in today and said we were, uh, what do we call ourselves? We are, I said, we prefer, where's Lynette? We prefer peculiar, right? We prefer to be called peculiar. Are we afraid of that? I mean, sometimes I am. I got to admit it. Sometimes I'm afraid. You know, depends on how many people are around. <laughs> I'm only afraid because I don't want to turn them off by being too overbearing or too powerful. I'm not afraid because they're going to beat me up. I've been beat up before. It's not a big deal. I'm still here. Hasn't hurt that much. All right, Gary? We heal. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We need to call them out of Babylon. Whatever part of Babylon they're in, we don't have to wait for the image to be made to worship on the false day. We don't have to wait for that. Okay? There may be something just like a diet or just like maybe uh, raising children. You have had some kids before, and they don't know. They, they start reading, and they're like, oh, this weird food. They're feeding babies, and I don't want to feed my baby any of that. I don't blame them. It's amazing how much garbage they make for babies. Yeah, sometimes the worst food. We can help. I know we can. We have helped, right? Call them out of Babylon, because those plagues that are coming down ain't going to be something you want to be a part of. And if you love anybody, and you should love everybody, and I'm still working on loving everybody. I got some enemies out there I'm not crazy about helping. I got to be honest. I'm even wondering how to pray about them, and I'm very cautious in how I pray about them, choosing my words very, very carefully. I'm not sure that's right. Eric, I think I should just be open and pray about them for the goodness of Christ. So I got a ways to go. I'm not ready for the ceiling. But I know I don't want to be part of Babylon. I know I've been called out of Babylon, and I don't want to go back. Even though Babylon somehow has that draw, and then you find yourself, wake up, oh. You know, I listened to a sermon preparing for this this week, and it's been a topic, something I've been thinking about for a long time. Living as in the Day of Atonement. And I, the sermon was from Stephen Bohr, one of my favorites. And it really brought it home. Because I'm like, how can we make that reference to live in the Day of Atonement when our whole life is in the Day of Atonement? The Israel nation had 10 days. They had started with the trumpets, Feast of Trumpets, and it ended with the Feast of Tabernacles. That was a 10-day period. And, and he just made so much sense out of it. But it really caused me to really look at myself and say, what am I doing wrong? I have it all wrong. I didn't have it all wrong, but I had enough wrong that may embarrass me to the point. But it's been a question that's been a burden on my heart for at least 10 years. How do we, living in the Day of Atonement, identify and do everything that they were doing in the 10-day period when I have to live my whole life there? 
how do we do that? He made so much sense of it. I'm not going to go into that now, but in finishing, getting out of Babylon. Have you, have you read The Seven Last Plagues? Does that sound like a cakewalk to you? If you really love somebody, do you want them to be part of that? It's a blessing to be put to sleep, not to go through it, but, I mean, just the first one. Get your catchers from yourself, start catching, what, hailstones the size of what, a talent, which is anywhere from 50 pounds to 70 pounds. You feel like catching them things? I don't want to get hit by them. Everybody ever been in a hailstorm? That's the first one. They don't get any better. So we don't want to be part of it. Jesus don't want us to be part of it. If we want to be Christ-like, shouldn't we be trying to get everybody else out of it? Whether they want to listen to you today or not, there'll come a day when they might want to come listen to you. Because truth can afford to be what? Fair and patient. Let the Holy Spirit do its work. But the Day of Atonement is something we have to do to prepare ourselves to be ready to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can't fill me if I have a cup half full. He'll give me half, but that ain't enough. i got to be full to overflowing. How does that happen? How can that happen to Frank, a sinner? Please tell me. The Bible does tell you. Praise God. It's called, it's called the Day of Atonement. Investigative judgment of my heart. Not Elias's, not Amy's, not Gary's. Mine. The Holy Spirit convicts me differently than it convicts you, James. So why should I call you out on things I'm convicted of? I should be here to help you. So just keep that in mind. we got to get over this hump that we're the chosen people like Israel, and somehow we're going to skate through this. Ain't happening. Ezekiel 9 talks a lot about it. Judgment starts here first. Not a pleasant thought. But we should be preparing now. For, I don't know, the last... When did the trumpets blow? When did the trumpets blow in the antitypical name, in the Day of Atonement that we're living in? 1844. That was the day the trumpets blew. Think about that for a moment. Just dwell on that. Yeah, how patient God is. <laughs> but how far behind we are. Or are we just where we're supposed to be? Only God knows.